You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. I am Dr. Jaron Stout. I am Dr. Joanne Pio, and we are your hosts of Senior Rx Radio. Today's guest is Dr. Katie Taylor. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're really excited to have you on the show today, Katie. And uh, I'll be honest. So yesterday, I decided I was going to hunt down some info on you. So you, my name might have popped up on your LinkedIn, where it said somebody was viewing your profile. And my name was probably in there. So <laughs> I did some research kind of looking into what you've done in your career. And I was really impressed to see the broad range of areas that you've worked in. It says you've been a consultant for Gore and Company. You've worked in as a clinical pharmacist in cardiology and in critical care, and also as an instructor. So maybe, do you mind giving us some background on your career? How did you get experience in such a broad range of settings? Yeah, I know it's a non-traditional pharmacy career for sure. So I started out, you know, undergrad, got my BS in biotechnology and didn't quite know what to do with that and found myself my, my first job in management consulting for the pharmaceutical industry. And did that for several years, really enjoyed doing that. But when I was reading medical journals, I could only teach myself so much. So like, what is P450? I can't figure out P450. So I decided I wanted to go back and I did, got my accelerated PharmD from Albany College of Pharmacy. And like many people who go to pharmacy school, they push you into clinical practice. That's where we're steered. And for 10 12, 13 years, that's what I did. I was a clinical pharmacist and because I came out in 2006 when PharmDs were the shiny new penny, I got a job as a critical care pharmacist with one rotation. So I had five weeks of experience and I became a critical care pharmacist. So I learned by doing. I read everything I could. I saw every procedure. I got mentors. I basically taught myself critical care medicine just by being on the ground and doing it. And at different hospitals, I built not one, but two clinical pharmacy programs. And then that culminated at Maine Medical Center. So a level one trauma, major academic medical center, 650 plus beds and worked there for several years. And I was second shifts with, you know, 12 units and 150 critical care patients on my watch. And eventually I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I could do it. I was very good at it but looked at the part of my job that I really loved doing. And that was project work. And that was the education piece of medical residents, pharmacy residents, pharmacists, nurses, patients. And that's when I started to dabble more in academia and teach online and in-person now at three institutions, undergraduate and at graduate levels. And I kind of just have done all these things to satiate my my learning and to use all of my skill sets and not just one or two, which I found so far that a lot of my jobs may have done. So that's kind of why I'm here today. I'm constantly learning, constantly delving into new things. So that's why my career has been kind of broad and varied. And then right now you're working for Gore and Company. You're consulting mm -hmm. for them. What does that involve? Well, it's funny. The Dr. Prasanna Gore, who is the founder of the company, I worked with at my very first job out of undergrad. And he's had this firm this entire time. And I worked with him full time. He actually was the one who encouraged me to go back to pharmacy school as a pharmacist himself. And we've worked together throughout the years as he'd have part-time projects or need me as an expert resource. I would work with him and then went back with him full-time a couple of years ago. What management consulting is, is we are kind of the hired guns 
for biopharma. So they will come to us with a problem or a need and we will do the due diligence and do the creative work and dig in the market research, whether that's you know primary, secondary, and come up with creative business solutions. So it's using the PharmD and the pharmacy background in really an application in the business setting. So I help pharmaceutical companies fill their pipeline, um, choose products and entities and different medications or even medication forms that will be available and fulfill unmet needs that are on the marketplace as well as profitable for the company itself. Very good. And then with your experience in cardiology, what is the most common medication problem or medication related intervention that you saw as a pharmacist or at least like top three situations you experienced? Something that was common and it kept on occurring. Well, in cardiology, I, I don't think it's going to be any surprise. Probably one of the biggest problems would be heart failure. And a lot of that stems from non-compliance and non-adherence to the regimens that we have. Very, very common. Uh, we had, you know, heart failure rounds just on those patients every single day. And then I, because of being in the critical care area and the cardiac ICU, we saw a lot of sudden cardiac arrests. So those massive, massive MIs that would come in. And then in the cardiothoracic space, those MIs would result in cabbages. So those are some of the biggest things that I would see over and over. And a lot of it was the complexity of the medication regimens that patients had. They didn't understand how to do it. They didn't want to do it anymore. And we, I would see, unfortunately, the worst patients at the very, very sickest. One thing that I've seen, I work in the outpatient setting, is with congestive heart failure patients, like the target dosing. How common did, like, have you seen that? And, like, what is a proposed solution for pharmacists when they have these congestive heart failure patients? Sure. I mean, the doses are aggressive or they need to be aggressive in order to be compliant with, you know, evidence-based medicine that is out there for heart failure. The tricky thing in as an inpatient is that you cannot ramp those patients up over the timeline that I see them. So the burden really does fall on patients in the ambulatory, the outpatient setting. What we try to do in the inpatients, try to get them to the target doses on those proper medications or help, you know, if we can work with their outpatient cardiology team to get them up to those things. So really the role for the pharmacist to know which drugs, which doses, and keep track of how the patients are doing, how their side effect profile is working out for them, but really having to push those doses because those are where the outcomes are. Because the suboptimal, you just don't have the same benefit from the medication as you would otherwise. It's tricky. It's not easy. But it's also that continuity between inpatient and outpatient, whether it's med rec, whether it's seeing the, the same cardiologist in the inpatient as the outpatient setting. But for pharmacists, we have to almost drive that bus and we have to be the ones to say, this is where they need to go. This is how we're going to get them there and kind of help the prescribers come up with a comprehensive plan that is palatable to both the patient as well as that will be compliant with some of the evidence-based medicine in that space. Of course, transitions of care is very, very tricky. My hospital does have almost like a meds to bed sort of program. We have a pretty robust outpatient pharmacy that lives in-house. And in the state of Maine, it's the only 24-hour 365 pharmacy we have. So we do get a lot of referral prescriptions through that process. And the pharmacist will come up with the meds, do all the counseling right at that point. We also have a very robust medication reconciliation team that is staffed to both pharmacists and technicians who, upon 
admission into the ER or a direct admission, we'll get the med rec then, and then it can occur again at the end of the stay of care. So I'm lucky that my institution has vast pharmacist involvement in those processes. We also, anytime a new medication is started, that inpatient pharmacists will do counseling as well as the outpatient pharmacists if they go with the pharmacy that we have in the building. But if not, the inpatient pharmacist will do a lot of medication, you know, just education. And that can be actually a consult that is placed by the prescriber. So if we're on rounds and we realize a patient has a new med or a complicated regimen, we say right on rounds, hey, why don't you put in a consult for us to go up and and counsel them? And that's a really good way to have the physician can talk about the meds, the nurse can talk about the meds, and then you come in finally with the pharmacist to kind of tie that up with a bow as as much as we can. And we strategically kind of pick our moments for when we're going to go speak to that patient. It's not going to be five minutes before discharge. We know hours before. So we want to get them at a time where they're more receptive. Maybe they have a family member or somebody else in the room that can also hear the information. We make sure it's not right before bedtime. We make sure they're not napping. We make sure they haven't just come back from a procedure or groggy. So we are a little strategic about when we do it as well as the message, but we're pretty in tune with who's going home, what they're going home on. And if they need a little extra education, especially if we've been rounding on them, you know, for a couple of days, we have a little bit better idea of who's needs a little bit more edification of the information than somebody who may not. Now, of course, if they go to, a, you know, a some sort of rehab facility or something else, we may not spend as much time educating them. But if they're going to go to a home environment, I think that's one of the best things that we can do is, is do that counseling piece and being very aware and then letting the prescriber know that this is in our wheelhouse and our capability skill set and asking for those consults. So we have an official documentation process in order to not only show that we do it, but again, get credit for what we do to show our value to administration, et cetera, as what we're doing as pharmacists. That's very good that you're you're showing your your role as a pharmacist and showing how crucial it is for us to play a role on the healthcare team. My next question is, you know, there are patients in the inpatient setting and then they get discharged. They go see their primary care provider, or sometimes they see their cardiologist. How can a pharmacist in the outpatient setting try to establish a role on the healthcare team, trying to figure out, hey, you know, I saw that this patient has congestive heart failure. You know, it's been four weeks since you, I saw this prescription. Can we titrate it up? That's a tricky place in the current healthcare environment for an outpatient pharmacist. And I assume by outpatient, you're more talking kind of that retail pharmacist. A lot of it is time. That's a really, that's a very intricate sort of breakdown of of somebody's, you know, drug regimen to have the time to really go in and use that pharmacy brain to tweeze out those little intricacies. We also don't have the complete piece of knowledge when retail. We don't know if they've failed at a higher dose and come back down necessarily, you know, with mail order and all those things that we really can be in a dearth of information. So we don't know the symptomology of the patient, if they have tolerated it at this dose, if there's another reason they may not have gone up. So without all of that information, it's really hard as an outpatient pharmacist to kind of make that call, because if you take the time to call the physician's office, to get through to the physician, make your case, and then you only have a piece of the information, you can be like, oh, I wasn't aware that this was a thing. Maybe you don't have a lab that would preclude a higher dose. Maybe you don't have some other piece of history. So 
one of the things I would recommend doing is just trying to, even without, if you don't practice in a state that has an official MTM sort of program or collaborative practice, excuse me, um, just starting to get relationships with your local prescribers and ask them what they would like from you. So don't just call giving them a problem, but kind of give them a help of a solution. I could assist you in this way. Maybe designing a pilot project with one particular physician and see how it goes and then learn from your successes as well as your failures. And if you learn something that way, then you can build something bigger with a second physician or physician group and kind of go from there. So I think a lot of it is going to be trial and error based on your particular practice, how busy you are, what resources you have, and then what your goal is to take on and what you hope to get out of that. But I think baby stepping and a lot of the stuff is one of the best ways to go about it because there's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of reasons why we haven't done it already and those are still going to exist. So I think we have to be creative and do some trial and error and do your own little pilot project. You know, Take down a little bit of data and see what worked, what didn't, what can I do better and pick your allies. Pick the physicians you think will be more open to this and then leverage those allies to move and get more allies, different physician groups, different prescriber groups, and kind of move from there. And also get the patient's buy-in. Like, would you like help optimizing your medication? Would you mind if I talk to your physician about this? Because if they're on your side and they're champions of what you're trying to do, you're much more likely to have success with that. Katie, you are speaking my language. (laughs) I love it. I've said exactly what you're saying so many times to so many people that mm-hmm. now is the time for pharmacists to get creative. Yes. It's time for us to be trendsetters, to set a new path, to evolve. We are in a very unique phase in the world of pharmacy right now. And if we can't evolve and, and adjust and be creative in, in showing our benefits, then we're done. And I think that the more that we show our benefits, the more that we will expand and, and keep going in that direction. So also, I was looking at your uh, your profile, like I was talking about earlier, and I noticed that you had an article about eating disorders. So what exposure have you had to eating disorders? And we kind of talked about this before the show, but what correlation do you see with eating disorders in the world of pharmacy? Well, I will disclose that I have recovered from anorexia nervosa and compulsive exercise myself. And this manifested for me while I was a pharmacist. This wasn't like a a lot of young people that it happens in adolescence. This happened to me, you know, in my thirties was when it got, it really got to the crux of an official diagnosis. So I was already a pharmacist. I already understood, you know, pathophysiology and all of these different things and metabolic, whatever, it doesn't matter. A lot of the same tendencies that made me a great pharmacist were the same tendencies that brought me down the path of an eating disorder. And that was perfectionism, holding myself to a very high standard, overachiever, detail-oriented, all of these sorts of things that made me a great pharmacist also really manifested in that perfectionism and sort of those tendencies that manifested in an eating disorder. And through working at many different places over the last 15 years, This is a thing in pharmacy. There's not studies on this. There's not data on it yet, but I can anecdotally say I have worked with more than my fair share of pharmacists who, even if they didn't have a full-blown eating disorder, were disordered in their eating. And our careers are high stress. They're fast paced. They don't lend themselves to healthy lifestyles all of the time. We may not even sit down to eat. We may not even get to eat. We may overeat because you're working an off shift. 
whatever it is. But one in 10 Americans are diagnosed with an eating disorder, have an eating disorder sometime in their lifetime. I would guess that it is higher in pharmacists because of the personality type that tends to be extremely successful in this sort of role is also the one that may predispose you to an eating disorder. And again, that's across the spectrum. It's not just anorexia nervosa. It's not just bulimia nervosa. There's also binge eating disorder and there's a variety of other offshoots of that. So that's kind of been my anecdotal experiences. I suffered from one myself. I've seen many coworkers who had either their own struggles or tendencies and maybe just haven't tipped over yet. But it's something that I've started to talk about because I think it's it's one of those hidden things within our society. We really don't talk about it, but I think even more in pharmacy, I don't think we're quite aware of it. But I would guess that if you start to look around at your colleagues and people you've known in this space, you can start to see that it's it's more common than I think think that we're aware of. Thank you so much for just being vulnerable with us and sharing that with us. I know that it's not easy and just bringing awareness to this issue. Being a pharmacist, it's a delicate thing. You know, you want to, you have to push out the prescriptions, you have to get the numbers, but you also care about the patient and just trying to have that balance. We even talked about this in the Art of Resilience show with Dr. Michaela Landy. There needs to be a way to cope. There needs to be that healthy coping mechanism. You know, someone once told me life is about being a tree. One branch is the stuff that you have to do. And the other branch are the things that you want to do. And that brings joy. And I think it's important for all of us, no matter, you said that you did a lot of stuff with burnout. I think that with anything in life, you have to create balance. You have to be careful of not having too much of anything because it leads into those compulsive disorders and that into the extreme of that. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think even if we have a tendency and it can be a tendency or predisposition to anything, I mean, look at disease. You may have you know, a disease state in your family. Just because you have an uncle with diabetes doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it too. It just means you might have a predisposition to it. And I think it's a similar thing with mental health whether that be an eating disorder, whether that be addiction, substance abuse, any of those sorts of things, some of the wiring can be the same, but I always say that genetics may load the gun, but something has to pull the trigger. And my trigger was pulled when I went through a, you know, a very major life stressor. And that's what tipped me over when I couldn't control everything, anything else in my life, I can control food and body. And for someone else that may be other unhealthy coping mechanisms, whether it be substances, whether it be gambling, whether it be shopping, whether it be whatever it is. But I think you're right. Anything to the extreme can be pathologic. So it's really kind of staying in the middle and coping in a way that is fruitful and helps you instead of taking away from it. I think the tricky thing with eating disorders is, is that, you know, the way our society looks at bodies, you know, there's a certain aesthetic that is assumed to be healthy, even if it's not. So as I was becoming thinner and more fit and more muscular and ate, you know, quote unquote cleaner and worked out harder, I was lauded for those efforts when really that's what was pulling me under. So people are, you know, people never pat you on the back for, you know, shooting up heroin, but this was no less deadly. Anorexia nervosa is the most deadly uh, mental health disorder of any of them. Number one mortality rate. 
So when you look at that patient population and we're telling you, good job for doing the thing that is killing you, that's what makes it very, very difficult to unravel. You know, when you look at addiction from substances, everybody knows it's bad, quote unquote. Everybody knows you shouldn't take that. You know, you have to get better. You have to recover. It's different with the hidden world of eating disorders. So I really agree with you. Anything to the extreme can be pathologic. So it's the balance in life that will keep you from tipping from one direction all the way to the other. Wow. That is a fascinating parallel. Very interesting. And I also want to reiterate what Joanne said. Thank you for for coming on the show and and being vulnerable and kind of explaining your perspective on these topics. And (laughs) we were able to touch on a lot of different topics because you have such a broad range of experience that we want to utilize. So that being the case, I am kind of the same way. I'm always looking for the next thing. And right now Mm -hmm. I'm kind of looking at how to get into pharmacogenomics and and utilizing that. So what is your next frontier? What are you looking to learn next and get into next? It's it's never ending. Right now, I'm really, really delving into the substances of abuse and a, a lot of ways where they interact with eating disorders. The, the patient population is the same. If you have an eating disorder, you're seven times more likely to have a substance abuse disorder. So that brain chemistry is highly aligned. I've also talked to many, many people in recovery from opiates, alcohol, et cetera. And the same things, the compulsions they go through is something that I went through too. And mine was just food. So right now I, I just finished a certification on substance of abuse pharmacist. I'm really spending a lot of time in that space and not just the pharmacology of it, but also the social interaction of it, because stigma is a thing across so many mental health disorders. And it is an eating disorders that I felt firsthand. But now we move into substances of abuse and pharmacists should be spending more time in that area because they're drugs and they affect our patients. You know, every pharmacist should be asking, you know, what do you take for medications? What do you take over the counter? What do you take for supplements? And what do you use that's illicit? Because if we don't ask, we'll never know. And there's some major drug interactions there. You want to talk about pharmacogenomics? I mean, CBD and THC have big implications there. They go through 2D6, they go through 3A4. So that's also an area that pharmacists, I think, really need to start to step up in because who's the healthcare provider who is most likely that somebody can get to? It's the retail pharmacist. You're the only and first point of care they have with the healthcare system just starting the dialogue and making sure that you're a safe space so people can start to talk about sub-abuse, I think is something pharmacists really need to play a bigger role in. And I'll tell you, just from a pharmacy geek, those drugs are fascinating. You look at the hallucinogens, you look at the psychedelics, you look at some of these other medications and the way they work and their mechanisms of action, just as pure scientists, this stuff is cool. But then you look at the stuff and how it affects the social aspects their entire life, you know, the money, the family, and all those other things, even in the crime and the imprisonment because of it. There's so many social as well as medical facets of this. It's a perfect place for pharmacists to play and again, show our value in a different way. But since most of us do not learn this in school, we have to take it upon ourselves to really delve in and learn which receptors are going on, what is happening here, what are the side effects that I need to worry about, what are the drug interactions if I have a patient on cocaine, if I have a patient on PCP, And I kind of got into this by working so many years of critical care because I saw every overdose and toxidrome possible. And I had to know how to treat it to tell my doctors how to treat it because they may not know either. 
So that's kind of my latest, coolest thing is really delving farther and farther and farther into these substances of abuse to know what my population is using and how they're abusing them and how that's going to impact their overall you know, drug therapy regimen, their overall care, their overall health, as mental health, as well as their physical health. That is so true. That's actually one of the initial things that sparked my interest in pharmacy was just the drugs of abuse and how they affect the body. Yeah, I think I was in sixth grade when it really sparked my interest in of learning about that. Mm. So yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's something we can all just totally nerd out on and, and uh, be fascinated with. So thank you very much. So this was a great episode, Dr. Katie Taylor. Like we went through a lot of different things, like Jaren said, because you have such a broad background. We were able to jump through different topics from eating disorders to career development, as well as a little clinical on cardiology. In terms of education, because you are also a clinical preceptor and you also are faculty, what is one thing that you would like to see? added or changed in the curriculum to better equip pharmacists or new grads based on your broad experience? I think we should have a little bit better curriculum on the profession as a whole. And that's kind of like where we can practice, what we can do, how we can be advocates for our own profession. We make great clinicians. We're very, very good at that. But we're very, very focused on being sometimes, I think, just great clinicians. We also have to be business people. We also have to be advocates in our field. We have to be members of the healthcare community as a whole. I've said this before. I think as a profession, pharmacists kind of have bad self-esteem. We take what we get. We say, oh, I'm not the smartest. I'm not a prescriber. We, We play down what value we actually have. So I think if we had a curriculum where we teach our students, this is what you can do. This is what's possible. We need to like toot our own horns a little bit and advocate not just for our patients, I think, but for ourselves as a profession. I mean, even in this whole COVID situation, we had senators put pharmacists in a non-healthcare category in public you know, addresses. And we had to fight back and be like, actually, no, we are healthcare professionals. So I think that the curriculum could do a little bit better by having us advocate better as a group for our profession to move it forward. Because if we don't do it for ourselves, nobody's going to do it for us. The nurses aren't going to do it for us. The physicians aren't. They're focused on their own goals as they should be. So we need to come together a little bit more and understand what we can do as a unit and come together and be a little bit more vocal and forward. And really the power that this degree and this training has, because we underestimate what we can do as a whole. That's awesome. So once again, just on every level, you are speaking my language. I love everything you've had to say. And and I meant to, to mention this earlier, but that's <laughs> another pet peeve I have is a lot of pharmacists tend to not make a decision when they find something that needs to be corrected. All they do is just bring it up and then, you know, pass the buck and let somebody else or the physician deal with the aftermath where in reality, we are trained, we are capable, and we should be helping drive the decision making by doing the research and saying, based on this patient and factors X, Y, Z, I think our best options are A or A or B or C. Give them several options, but never just present a problem without at least presenting a possible solution. 
I agree. I, and I think that's one of the things too. It's not just about the problem. It, it is the solution. And then back that up with something while we're still fighting for credibility. And a lot of pharmacists are still doing that. We have to come with data. We have to show it's, this is not just what I think, but this is why I think it. Exactly. Because I think it's harder to argue with data, but if still you're the one presenting that, you still gain the credibility there. So I think that's another way too. We know how to do evidence. We know how to back ourselves up, but we have to come with that armed, I think, in order while we're still, even now, even in 2020, building our credibility. I've been practicing for 15 years. I still see this. It has gotten better, absolutely. But there's a lot of smaller institutions that do not utilize pharmacists nearly to the amount that we should be. Um, even in the lay public, people do not understand that pharmacists are in hospitals. I get that all the time. Like, why is a pharmacist in a hospital? So there, we still have some PR that we have to bring up. And that's just in the lay public as well as within healthcare and our, our healthcare colleagues. It's not across the board, but I still think we have a long way to go to getting the, the cred that we deserve, that we've earned and that we work hard to establish. Well said. Well once again, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We we really enjoyed this and, and uh, enjoyed getting to know you and all the areas of expertise you have. It's been a real pleasure. We hope to maybe talk with you again sometime else. Thank you so much for having me. This is always fun. And like I said, I, I have opinions on lots of things. So yes. it's not hard for me to find something to talk about, but we definitely hit in some of my, the, my near and dear topics tonight. So thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, you bet. There has to be a Dr. Katie Taylor part two. <laughs> Fabulous. I'm totally game. 